0: to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Jussi. And I'm Tobias. Join us
1: for a journey in the cloud. Hey and welcome to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. Today's episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. Check out their PowerShell poster that covers the PowerShell basic and the most important commandlets. Whether you're already running PowerShell or need to ramp up, this is a great resource. So check them out. The link is in the show notes. What's up, Yussi?
0: All good here. I realized this morning that I am at a point in my life that I finally, finally get to design and specify and perhaps even order the gear for my future home gym. So I think many in the in the audience, they've, they've heard me mention a couple of times about the house building project and just yesterday i finally were able to walk in my future cellar the basement and one room is dedicated for the home gym and in order to actually utilize that i need the gear and it's it's funny you go to uh, a website for a company that sells all sorts of weights and, and and apparatus and you start adding those in the shopping cart the more you keep adding the more they keep recommending, well, you actually need this one as well. Oh, have you considered that? And this is a must-have for you as well. So Mm. now in the shopping cart, I've I've just added mostly everything they did recommend to me. It's about three pages of stuff. And I'm not fully certain I need all of that. So this is perhaps a positive problem, but they were sort of... uh, telling me that if you order now, you might get it by April. So I, I, I try to be ahead of time because I need them by March or April 22. So we'll see how that goes. But that's filling my my days and thoughts nowadays. What should I get and do, can I afford it? And also, is it something I really need?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is. <laughs> There's always a reason. I think that sounds good. Uh, home Gym is pretty nice. I miss going to the gym these days because like we talked about many times in this show now, uh, you know, missing people and talking to people. And even if it's people you don't know, just having people around you, I'm, I've been working from home for eight years. So whenever I get the chance, I try to get out and meet people and, you know, have conversations with people other than in a virtual meeting, which I've done for, for many years now. And, uh, for me, I would probably spend my time at the actual gym instead But I I like this idea when you have the space and you can have your own home gym, you can, you know, plan your workout whenever you have a free moment, you don't have to kind of commute to the gym, if you will, and then wait for someone to actually leave the, the machine you want to use. So, so that sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to the pictures when it's done on my end. I, uh, like I mentioned in the previous episode, I have done my own mulled wine or glug, like we say in Sweden, and this is fermenting really well now. And it's a fantastic holiday vibe now in the storage and home office where this now is located. So to that end, Christmas spirit came kind of early this year and decorations are now in full planning. Now over here, we never really overdo it, but it is nice, you know, with the dark time of the year that we have now to get some nice lights. And get some decorations up um, usually this time of year in Sweden and also in Finland, it's pretty dark and it gets dark pretty early as well. So in, in the coming weeks, it's going to be dark just after 3 PM. And when it gets dark that early, it's kind of nice to have some, some nice lights and, and decorations out in the garden and outside the house. And so whenever you're inside the house, you can look outside and it's not so dark and depressing. So um, I'm looking forward to that. So with the mulled wine and the scent and and smell that comes out of the fermentation, which is really good, we now have the the full holiday vibe in the house. Albeit there's several weeks left to go, to go. We're in a in a pretty nice spot, you know, with with the family and the kids are super excited about Christmas and celebrating. Perhaps mostly because they know they will get some Christmas presents under the tree and stuff like that. But it's a it's a nice vibe to have because last year we were moving so we around christmas we lived inside of moving boxes so we didn't have much of that last year so now we are getting a revenge
0: on the christmas spirit this year sounds sounds good have i told you lately that i actively dislike christmas and the holiday (laughs) (laughs)
1: no no you haven't
0: (laughs) no but we we do the same perhaps a bit more low-key, uh, but but the kids do do love the sort of Christmas vibe that you get. Alrighty, so today, this is episode 111. How do you choose the correct Azure Compute service? I have no idea. I just go for a virtual machine. Do I have other options?
1: Yeah, and I, I think this is a, a topic that can either go for 10 minutes and, you know, we, we brief about it, or we can spend five days on it. Yeah. Because there is always what if and it depends and what variables do you have. But I, I thought let's talk about you know the bigger picture and uh, what options do you have. And as to your question, you know, you put a VM, what other options do you have for compute services? In Azure, I think the most common compute services from the top of my head are you know VMs where you deploy and manage your VMs inside of an Azure virtual network and you can connect it that way. You have Azure Batch. And this is like a managed service for running large scale, parallel and high performance computing or HPC apps. Uh, you have Azure app service. I think most people running anything in the, in the cloud or in Azure today know about the Azure app service. And this is like a managed service for hosting your web apps, mobile apps, backends, REST APIs, you know, business process management, whatever. So you can do a lot of things with that. You also have Azure functions, which is a managed fast service or function as a service. And this uh, is something we've touched upon a couple of times in this show already um, with Azure Functions. We also recently had an episode on Azure Durable Functions, which was uh, really interesting with, uh, with a guest speaker as well. So if you're keen on checking that out, uh, go to the controloutazure.com website and find the episode on that. Um, that was very insightful. We also have Azure Container Instances, And this is like the fastest and easiest way to run containers in Azure. You don't need to provision any VMs or any clusters or any other higher level service at all. You just pretty much say, I want to spin up a container on this image and it's done. And it's fairly quick. Uh, So I I utilize that a lot. Then you have something called Azure Service Fabric. And this is a name perhaps some people know about, others might not. And it came to my attention a, a while ago that we used Azure Service Fabric way back. And I say way back as in several years ago for for a couple of things, but I haven't heard anyone recently use it. And this is like a distributed system platform that runs in many environments, including Azure and on-prem with, I think, support for the full .NET framework and things like that. Then you have Azure Spring Cloud. And I think we Brushed on that in one episode as well, which is a managed service, and and that's also designed to optimize for uh, for hosting Spring Boot apps. If you have those, then you have ARO or Azure Red Hat OpenShift. That's essentially uh, containers running with Kubernetes, uh, you know, on platform as a service. And my knowledge here is a bit limited, so unfortunately, I can't say much more about the specific service and and what the uh, the service itself offers or entails, I just know that you have the option. So if you're coming from that uh, that direction and you run any Red Hat had OpenShift stuff, then there is an option to, uh, to get this rolling on Azure as well. And then of course, what we also talked about in many episodes, the Azure Kubernetes Services or AKS, it's a service for running containerized applications. And um, compared to Azure container instances, it's a bit more of a platform, if you will. We have built-in orchestration, load balancing, and a, a bunch of things. You can scale in, scale out the replicas and stuff like that. So, so those are the options that I see from the top of my head. These are the compute options in Azure. There might be something that I missed in that, but I think for the most cases, these are the ones that you would make a decision between where right, to put your workloads. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm counting nine different compute service uh, capabilities here. Uh, something that I've seen now in the past couple of years uh, with a few projects is, is a combination of this. And what I mean by this is that you might have a bunch of virtual machines running in a, in a fairly simple setup, spin up an Ubuntu Linux, run whatever on there. But then later on comes the need to perhaps run a scheduled task as a container but instead of going to container instances, perhaps the developer only has access to that single VM. So what they might do is they spin up a container within that VM and, and you sort of still utilize the same VM compute service, but you also get the flexibility of the container. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this approach because I, I feel you're sort of suffering things that perhaps shouldn't always be shuffled together when you would have container instances or AKS or many of the other options, even running a web app with a container might do the trick in there. But beyond this, have you been exposed to Azure Batch Service? Because in all my years in working with Azure, I've seen a single deployment of Azure Batch.
1: (laughs) Yeah, good question. I have used it because before we set up our current microservice architecture, which is now globally distributed in a, in a pretty high-performance microservice architecture, we evaluated if we wanted to use Azure Batch for that, because Azure Batch can provide you know, this high-intensive uh, computing. Other than that, I, I haven't heard anyone else use it. That said, I know organizations use it. I know especially bigger organizations where you might have you know, a, a lot of... Uh, heavier operations that need to uh, to run regularly and a lot of them, and you need to scale out to hundreds or perhaps thousands of of instances, then this is a great option. So I I have used it, but very limited. And when I did use it, it was for our use case where we needed to quickly scale up, scale down, and you know have simple orchestration based on kind of the the count or the weight in our queues, so we could. If, if we got a lot of messages in the queue of a certain type, we know that, okay, the work ahead that we have will take a long time and will require quite a lot of CPU and, and memory. And then we can kind of quickly scale up. And based on that, we could, you know, make the decision for, for in, in our case, functions and Azure container instances where the container instances do the heavy lifting and Azure functions decide what to create. So Azure Batch was a, a bit, you know, overkill for us. But I, I just know that if you're, if you're building something new and you don't require full control of it because if you do require full control you essentially go to a vm if you don't require full control and it needs to be one of these like high performing you know high performance computing things then azure batch might be a good fit other than that no short answer is no not a lot of experience with it
0: okay and and i, I think the same sort of applies to azure service fabric nowadays So as I recall this, I did spend some time with Service Fabric uh, some years ago, and I figured perhaps I need to study at least the basics of this. But then I understood from several messages that Microsoft put out publicly that yes, Service Fabric is here to stay, but initially it's been the service offering that Microsoft uses to to implement and, and offer new Azure services. So perhaps it's not optimal in 2021 in utilizing to build your custom solutions any longer, especially since you can now run Kubernetes and, and other services natively on top of Azure. But you mentioned that that you did use that previously. How would you say if somebody today would would ping you and say, yeah, we're thinking about service fabric, should we go with this or should we go with something else?
1: You know, again, it, it depends. I, I know that today, it, you know, to, to set the scene here a little bit, I haven't worked with Service Fabric for quite some time. What I do know is, you know, it, it is now like a distributed systems platform and you you can make it easy to package, deploy and, and manage your scalable and reliable microservices and containers here. So you still have the, like, if you want to do a microservice architecture, you can do that. You have lifecycle management, you have always on orchestration You know, it's support for a bunch of different programming models. Um, You get all the health and monitoring stuff that we also talked about a lot in this show, and how important that is. Uh, DevOps and all the tools for that, Uh, automatic scaling. You can run it from your dev machine, from Azure, from an on-prem data center, from any other cloud as well, and that that has support for it. So, Service Fabric actually powers many services today, including like Azure SQL databases, Azure Cosmos DB, Cortana. Microsoft Power BI, Microsoft Intune, Azure Event Hubs, Azure IoT Hub, Dynamics 365, Skype for Business, and many other core Azure services. And as you can realize, I just read that <laughs> off of a page <laughs> on the documentation, because there's no way I would know that. Um, and, and, you know, so Service Factory is being used and, you know, it, it does support a lot of these things. So it might, I mean, it has a fit and, and a use case and you get like the container orchestration, you can have your stateless or stateful microservices built on that. You have the ALM capabilities, and you can essentially run on any OS on any cloud. So you can create clusters for Service Fabric in many environments, including Azure uh, or on-prem, Windows Server, or Linux, whatever you want, and then create clusters on other public clouds as well. So um, the development environment in the Service Fabric SDK is pretty much identical to the production environment. With no emulators involved, like you have in, in many other scenarios. So, in other words, whatever runs on your local uh, development cluster is what deploys to your clusters in other environments as well. So, for Windows development, for example, the Service Fabric.NET SDK is integrated with Visual Studio and PowerShell. And for Linux development, the Service Fabric Java SDK is integrated with Eclipse. And Yeoman is used to generate the templates for Java,.NET Core, and container apps and stuff like this. So, uh, and, and one question that I know I got not too long ago about this is someone already decided they needed to, to use that because number one, they had the knowledge internally of Service Fabric, which is a, also a weighing factor. They already had the expertise of how to set up their dev team and their production environments using Service Fabric. And then, you know, my favorite topic is if you're listening into this show a lot, you know, compliance and regulatory compliance, stuff like this, something that is uh, something I work with a lot. And an Azure Service Fabric uh, research provider is available in all Azure regions, and it is compliant with all Azure compliance certifications like the SOC, ISO, PCI DSS, HIPAA, GDPR, stuff like that. And, and I think you can also go to the Microsoft Compliance Offerings website, which is microsoft.com slash compliance. I think I know this by heart. And from there, you can, yeah, you can see all the, the, all the services and how they are compliant to these different things and and service fabric there is uh, compliant with everything that I just said so that's also a way in factor
0: okay I can I can buy into this one definitely often how I sort of approach this on what compute service to use and and when I sort of try to envision what sort of scenes or requirements a customer might have for the compute scenarios and, and often if I start with VMs, because that's probably what I'm most familiar with out of all of these, is that the, the VM is the simplest building block. It's the Duplo or the Lego block for a lot of IT pros. You can always say, well, let's put two VMs here. They will run whatever. And everybody can can nod in agreement that, okay, this makes perfect sense. But once you start branching out to app service or functions, there's there's more things to consider in the sense like what sort of a function and and how much is going to cost and is it the consumption or or some dedicated capacity and and everything else and it it quickly dives into the developer landscape the vm is always more on the it pro landscape but how how do you approach this if for example in one of the services that you look after you, you had a new need do you immediately go with something like AKS or do, do you have some sort of a decision tree that you use internally to figure out what would be the optimal compute service for a given scenario?
1: Yeah, and I think this is a great question because you know that always starts with another question. What is it that you actually need to do? What's the business requirement? So, so the question is, how, how do you what's your decision tree look like for starting from whatever you have to deciding what service in Azure to land on. And there's actually a uh, kind of compute decision tree from Microsoft in their documentation. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So I use that and then I also have a modified or extended version of that that I use myself. And, And that's pretty good because you can ask a lot of questions around how to do these things based on that decision tree. So essentially at the top you have, this is where you start. And the first question would be, are you migrating or are you building something new? Because this is a very important question. Because if you're migrating, you get all the legacy stuff that comes with whatever code base you have. And that might be the full .NET framework. It might be something else. If you're building something new, you can opt in to say, well, I want to do this on .NET 6, you know, because that is now fully supported and and released uh, with LTS support. And then you can decide based on that, So so for argument's sake, let's say we're migrating. We get a workload that already exists on-prem or that runs on a server somewhere, and we need to now migrate this to the cloud. Then you will get a question, or you need to ask yourself the question, do you need to lift and shift or cloud optimize it? And in in this case, lift and shift, shift is pretty much a strategy for migrating the workloads to the cloud without redesigning the application or making any code changes. Whatever you have already running just gets kind of rehosted. we I think we call this rehosting. So you take whatever is hosted today on-prem and you plug that into the cloud, but you don't change the application. You don't build it for the cloud. You just take whatever you have and put it in the cloud and then runs as is. That is called rehosting or a lift and shift migration. So you pretty much just change the hosting model. The other option there, so again, decision tree being I want to migrate, do you want to lift and shift, or do you want to cloud optimize? So if you cloud optimize something, that is a strategy for migrating to the cloud by refactoring an app and take advantage of the cloud native features and capabilities. And that includes everything that is built in into Azure for resilience and reliability and security and scalability and whatever. So the main difference here, and, and this is also a road where you have to make a decision. If, if you just want to lift and shift, you just want to get it onto the cloud. So you can dump your servers and, and discard the, the actual physical service you have lift and shift might be the easiest option. And then you can figure out what to do with it. If you also want to cloud optimize it, which you can do either immediately or at a later point after a lift and shift, then if you want to do that, you can decide what capabilities to take, take advantage of. And you know, if you decide, okay, let's, let's make it cloud optimized because we don't just want the same app to run. And you say, okay, I want it cloud optimized. Then does it require to be a, a high performance computing? Yes, well, then maybe Azure Batch is actually the option like we talked about before. If you need any type of HPC, HPC workload, then Azure Batch is a really good fit. If you don't need an HPC workload, the next question would be, do you want this to be a Microsoft microservice architecture? If it does not, then you can plug it into an Azure App Service, for example. If it does need to be a microservice, then the next question is, is it going to be event-driven workloads with uh, short-lived processes like a queue message and, and events coming into a queue? If so, Azure Functions. It's an optimal choice in most cases, but again, it depends. But this is where I would go. If you don't want event-driven, then the next question would be, do you need full-fledged orchestration? If you do, then um, you need to ask yourself, do you need a managed service for that? Because with full orchestration, usually comes the requirements from your own business requirement that you need full control or you need to orchestrate, you need some kind of control of the system. The next question would be, do you need a managed service or not? If you say not, then you own the orchestration, you know, and you can build this on virtual machines because then you have full control. If you need a managed service, so you don't have to do the OS upgrades, you don't have to configure the OS and things like that, then you have a, a couple of different options, like Service Fabric. If you have older .NET framework code, you can plug that into Azure Service Fabric. It helps, of course, if you're familiar with that. If you're not familiar with that or, or don't need .NET uh, framework, then, of course, the question we talked about before, is it a Spring Boot app? Well, then you can use Azure Spring Cloud. If not, is that a Red Hat OpenShift app? Then you can use that. Otherwise, the default choice usually falls on AKS, Azure Kubernetes Services. You know, In reality, I don't go through all of these options. I don't go through Azure Service Fabric, Spring Cloud, Red Hat, OpenShift. I, I go through essentially VMs, Azure App Service, Azure Functions, container instances, and then AKS. These are kind of the the main compute workloads where we usually make our decisions for a bunch of different reasons. One is the the knowledge we have about these are extensive. We know a lot about them, and we can get things up and running really quickly. And and also the requirement we have now, everything we do is microservice architecture, so it's easy for us to plug and play new services into our system. So that's pretty cool. So you you can see here the. The decision tree is pretty straightforward. It's actually also a very nicely uh, designed visual graphic. So again, the, the link to that will be in the show notes. You can check it out. But the other option there, we just said, well, if you're gonna lift and shift or cloud optimize a mig- migrated workload, the other option, which is what I like more is building something new. You know, The same questions comes in, do you require full control? Yes, well, then you go to a VM. Just like you said before, sometimes you, you have your VM, sometimes you need full control for whatever reason you can plug your stuff onto that uh, onto that VM. One thing that I stumbled on a couple of times to, to take the scenario you described where you have a VM and you plug a Docker container and you run that onto that one VM. The issue that I've seen is when you go from that scenario and the customers say, okay, that's great. It kind of works most of the time unless we do a Windows update or unless we do this or unless we do that. Um, there's no high availability uh, or it's, it's a bit more difficult to achieve high availability because you need to manage all of that. So the question there is, do you require full control? Yes. If you do ask yourself why and, and ask that question, you know, fully and and try to understand the why, because I think going to a VM is super easy. If you get stuck in a VM with your workloads and then you need to, to have a managed service or you need to have auto scaling or scale in, scale out, or you need to have a, high availability scenario with uh, different regions and whatever, then VMs can, of course, support it. But you would have to design that yourself and make sure the apps can support it as opposed to just going to one of the platform as a service, like, for example, take uh, functions or take app services or whatever. They have scaling built in. They have redundancies built in. You can have them in, in multiple regions and you can have failovers. You can have this, you can have that. So it, it all comes down to, uh, to the requirements you have. But I think that the decision tree looks kind of the same, whether you're migrating or building new. The question is always, you know, can it be containerized? Is it going to be a microservice? Do you need this full control that we talked about? Do you need a full-fledged orchestration? Stuff like that. So if, if you want to build a microservice that is event-driven, you go to Azure Function. If you don't want to do that event-based or message-based, And you don't need the full-fledged orchestration. You can go to Azure Container Instances. So I think that the decision tree is pretty straightforward. And yeah, I I think I touched on on most of the services here. And um, that's pretty much what it looks like. And then, like I said in the beginning, this is something we can spend 10 minutes on or, or three days on talking about. Before diving further into that topic, I would always ask the why. Why Do you want to migrate or why do you want to build this thing? And sure, there is a business requirement for it. The next question is, what is it supposed to do? And what are the requirements around it? Like high availability, high performance, scalability. You know, do you want to manage it? Do you want to, it's one of the reasons you're moving to the cloud because you don't want to manage stuff. You don't want to manage your service. You don't want to apply updates. You just want to have something running. Well, pick any of the platform as a service options they're always up to date and you can just make sure that your code is up to date and then everything will be afloat. So there are a lot of options for choosing your compute uh, workload in, in Azure. And I think we touched on, on most of them here, very, very high level. Um, but I, these are the questions that I, I would ask myself and, and ask the team, if we're building something you're migrating.
0: I really like this approach and the, the, diagram that that we will add in the show notes it of course has the lift and shift and then it has that the option that you're building something new but in between where you have the cloud optimized I like that there's this opportunity because sometimes you might have something legacy running in a VM in let's say in an on-premises environment you simply cannot lift and shift that perhaps the operating system is not supported in Azure or there's something else like latency requirements that it has to remain in the same network as perhaps some clients or other servers that depend on that one but then when you when you have the third option here the cloud optimized one what it means is that you can port some capabilities to the cloud perhaps containerize an api that your future services from the cloud will connect with and that api will reach back the on-premises legacy VM to do something that's not time sensitive or resource in uh, resource sensitive and then returns whatever values back to the cloud and and this way I sort of feel that it's not lift and shift but you're optimizing the solution by getting the benefits from the cloud without destroying anything and this might run for a number of years before you can eventually retire the old bits uh, okay, so we touched upon a lot of different services. Perhaps in, in some future episodes, we'll, we'll dive, dive deeper into many of these. Um, the last thing we have is the unexpected question. Toby, your turn.
1: Yeah, so, so I have an interesting question here, uh, because we, we all can probably relate to something being nostalgic from, you know, from the 80s uh, when I got my first Nintendo in the early 90s or whatever, or a mixtape, you know, how you could record mixtapes in the past. And sometimes I would wait by the radio until my favorite song came on. And when it did, I hit the record button. And then I had one of those uh, mixtapes uh, or uh, tape devices or radio. I don't even know how we call them these days. I radio devices, whatever, tape recorders, I think, with dual tapes. And I could take that the tape where I recorded the song and I can plug an empty one in the other slot, and I could re-record from um, number one to number two, from the first tape to the second. And then I can do that maybe ten or eleven times, and I had the same song for eleven times on the tape. And that's how you got a full tape of the same song. So today you just go into Spotify and say repeat the song, right? Back in the day you had to re-record that song, you know, across the um, across the tape. Uh, anyway, that was not the, the question. That was just <laughs> everyone is nostalgic about something. So the question to you is, in 40 years, what will people be nostalgic for?
0: This is a great question.
1: I, I have
0: three answers. The, the first one is the vanity answer. They will be nostalgic for Control-Alt-Azure, the great podcast show. <laughs> they will go why though it's it's gonna be running still (laughs) well that is true because (laughs) in 40 years I will be 84 (laughs) so so, yeah exactly uh but perhaps for the old episodes by that time but they would still be available though then the, the, the the IT answer here is floppy disks because 40 years from now we will still be using a text editor or PowerPoint or something else and when you want to save something there's the disk icon. And my kids do not know what that means, they just know that it means save. So even today I'm nostalgic for having physical storage media. And the, and the, perhaps the, the neutral answer is it depends on where you reside in. What I mean by this is that when I go to the close by grocery store, which is opposite uh, from where I live, I can go there any time of the year and they always have oranges and banana and all these sort of exotic fruits and vegetables that do not grow in finland and i can i can simply pick them up for for practically nothing so what i sort of feel is that in the future we might not have real coffee anymore it will be lab grown coffee perhaps and we will be nostalgic for yeah I remember in 2021 we had real coffee oh that was good but now we do this this artificial thing almost as good, but it's not the same thing anymore.
1: <laughs> Everything will be in a lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And
0: and perhaps we missed the keyboard and the mouse and the 2D interfaces, all of the things we've been using for for two decades now, but perhaps in the future we will be using something else. Yeah, all right. Alrighty, this was fun. Uh, episode 111, how do you choose the correct Azure Compute Service? Thank you again for tuning in and until next week.